Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons, or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, friends. How y'all doing this morning? Cool. I asked you two questions at once, huh? So you said good morning and not good at the same time. Hey, it's good here to be with you. I'm excited for us to spend the next little bit of time together. Super pumped that when they said, hey, who wants to hear a sermon twice as long head that way that you all came? So that's super cool. I'm glad that we could spend the next 55 minutes together doing this. Just kidding. Um, But I do have a question for you. Um, You you ever come to a point in your life, kind of a moment or a situation where you just kind of stop, you back up for a second and you say, like, how do we get here? Like, why are we doing this? You know, maybe like you're afraid of water and you ended up on a boat somewhere, or maybe you're thinking like, I don't like this band. Why am I at this concert? Or we don't like these people. Why are we doing dinner with them? You know, we find ourselves in these situations. Uh, Some of you are like, yeah, college, like all of it. Why are we doing this? I had an experience like this not too long ago. Uh, My wife, Beth, and I uh, just uh, moved into a new house in the area. And so we're kind of reorganizing and decorating different things and finding new pieces of furniture for the different places. And there was this one little area kind of off our kitchen where she wanted a baker's rack. I didn't know what this was until like two weeks ago, but we needed a baker's rack. And so in order to get the right baker's rack, we had to like go through all of the antique malls in the Joplin area. Uh-huh. Okay, good. Some of those of you who aren't locals, you heard what they just did, right? There's a lot of them. And so we're looking at all these baker's racks, and it's not the right one, or it is, but it's not for sale, for display only. And after about the third one of these, I'm pretty sure even my wife was looking at this thing going, why are we here? Like, why are we doing this? Anyway, you know where I'm going with this. Sometimes we can ask that question when it comes to church. And this might be true if, um, if maybe this is your first time in church in a long time. This might be true if you've been to church every Sunday for as long as you can remember. Sometimes we stop and we ask of a day like today, like, why did I get up? It's freezing cold. I was warmer in my sheets. All right, like I could just go get a cup of coffee and come right back to my bed and all would have been well. Why did you get up and come here in this particular place today? And not just today, but more generally. Like whether it's this place or someplace else, if you live somewhere else or some other church, if you're closer to one in the area, it's not about us, but like why generally would you come back to church? Why would you not just come but consider continuing, staying, sticking? Now, for the most part, you're here and you're probably not going to walk out. Like we knew we'd have guests today, so we said all the really offensive stuff last week, so don't worry. But why would you continue to engage something like this? Most of us are probably vaguely aware of the fact that Jesus places certain demands on our lives. And if you've not heard, he's the kind of person who says, you got to trust me completely. I want it all. I want total commitment, allegiance, devotion. I want to have authority in your life. And I want you to listen to me every second of every day. And this combination of high demand with this habit Jesus has of saying some really strange things is one of the reasons why sometimes people walk away. And I want you to open up your Bibles, if you have them, to John chapter 6. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, fourth story of Jesus' life. And we're going to look at a scene in Jesus' life when a lot of people walked away. So John chapter 6 is our chapter. We're going to be looking at the back end of this in verses 60 and following. I'll read it for you here in a second. Let me set the context. We've been walking through this um, passage for the last few weeks, and we come now to kind of the end point, and it hasn't really gone all that well. So not too long ago in the book of John, uh, Jesus uh, looked out and he had a lot of people who were following him around, like 5,000 men plus probably some women and children. So you have, I don't know, 10, 12,000 people 
following him around the Sea of Galilee from place to place, teaching. They're kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And you maybe heard the story. He's like, hey, they're kind of hungry. We've got to get them some food. We don't have any food. What are we going to do? Five loaves, two fish, bam, feeds them all. Everybody's impressed by this. Everybody's excited by this. They actually try to make him king. Instead, he withdraws, and he kind of hides out for a little while and sends them on their way. Well, they go on their way in different directions, kind of just watching out for the moment they're going to see Jesus again. And meanwhile, Jesus like walks on the water toward his disciples who are in a boat, and then they land, and there's a bunch of people there. And so then Jesus preaches this really strange sermon. No, no, no joke, probably like, again, seven, between seven and 12,000 people here. And Jesus has an opportunity to speak to all of them. They're ready and willing, and some of them want to see more tricks and have more bread and hear more cool things. And Jesus preaches one of the most bizarre sermons he's ever preached. If you've not read it, you should go take a look later on. You'll be weirded out, I promise. He'll say things like, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. Anyway, long story short, doesn't go well. By the time we get to this point in the text, like most of the people have walked away. So let's just say conservative estimate, 7,000 people, 6,000 plus, like 6,900 plus are like, I'm not so sure about this. This is weird, which it is a little bit of a strange, you know, text to talk about on Easter, like the day when most people come to church. Hey, let's talk about a time when everybody walked away, you know, but we're weird. And so we want to look straight at this thing. And part of why we're weird is that we want to ask hard questions, the kind that are raised in this passage. So read with me, John chapter 6. I'm going to read in verse 60, and then I'll just read on through the end of the chapter, so you can follow along as well. It says, on hearing it, that's this teaching Jesus had just given, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Even his closest followers are like, this is weird, Jesus. Who Who can take you at your word? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. And so he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. And here's the key statement. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And then Jesus replied, have I not chosen you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil, adversary, enemy. That's what the word means. He meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, who, though one of the 12, was later to betray him. Like I said, kind of a strange text. Jesus has a crowd, which, for a preacher back in the day, crowd is a pretty good thing. Jesus preaches a sermon, gives a teaching. It's a strange one. Most people walk away. Twelve stay, but one of the twelve is not going to stick around. What do we do with this? And in the middle of you have this statement, you have the words of life, where else would we go? What we want to do with this is to ask some questions. The first question we want to ask is, kind of like back then, a lot of people decided to walk away from Jesus. We know that the same thing happens today. We know that some of us in this room may very soon find ourselves looking at Jesus saying, I don't really know if I want to stick around with you anymore. So let's talk through some of the reasons why, then and now, people looked at Jesus and said, no thanks. There's plenty of reasons, if we're being honest. 
All different sorts of reasons. Then and now, why people say, no, back then, some people wanted Jesus to do more tricks. Other people, you know, didn't like the way Jesus was talking about their respected authorities. Still others, they just left because Jesus sounded like a weirdo. But let's try to analyze, if we can, in simple terms a little bit, some of the reasons why we say no thanks. I think for some of us, we just look at Jesus and we say, you know what, this is not the best offer. I've got other offers on the table. Nothing new here. Got other offers on the table, just like they did back then. And any time we look at the extended hand of Jesus with the offer in it, and we walk away, then we're walking towards someone else's open arms. You reject Jesus, you're accepting someone or something else. And for most of the people in Jesus' context, it was kind of going back to some form of Judaism that they had been practicing. And the traditional faiths are still with us today, and they're attractive in certain respects. Judaism still has its rich traditions and cultural heritage. Maybe this is appealing to you. When you get past some of the extreme versions, Islam has a good sense of order and authority and submission to a God who has a plan for things. You go through the list, Buddhism provides us with some cool practices like meditation, that's kind of sexy today, and some interesting different things. Mormonism has a strong emphasis on, on family values. And so you've got the various faiths who are offering us a path. But back then and now, it's not just the like specifically religions that sometimes draw people away from Jesus. A lot of times it's different forms of humanism or meism, usism. It's directing our attention away from something out there and toward what we control in here. I mean, let's just find the meaning of life by looking inward or by looking around us to our family and our community and our country, making a difference in the lives of those who are here. I can't see God, but I can see people. I can't see Jesus, but I can see me. Maybe that's a good starting point. And I love and am bothered by something Mark Christian often says. For Jesus to do what he needs to do, what he wants to do in each of us, we have to completely abandon our own self-sufficiencies and place ourselves totally at his disposal. And most of us look at that offer. A lot of people look at that offer, and most of us are tempted at times to look at that offer and say, I'm not so sure I'm interested in abandoning my self-sufficiencies and placing myself at your disposal. I think it sounds a little bit more effective, a little bit safer to me to look inward or to look around and to do this on our own. So I don't know whether your brand or your friend's brand of this is more like a political activism or a, or a positive thinking type thing, but a lot of people look at Jesus and they just say, you know what, no thanks, it's just not the best offer. Still others might say, well, this offer's fine, but I'm not sure about it. That's what's in some of the words here. When some of these different disciples, they hear and they, they hesitate and they back up, then I'm not sure about it. I hear this one often and I feel it myself too. Jesus asks for so much, but he's not in the room. He places such intense demands on my life and on the lives of those I love, but I can't actually see him. I don't know for sure. And we don't like what we don't know for sure, especially when it comes to commitments like this. Now, I could be wrong, but I feel like maybe as the people we're getting more careful in certain respects, at least with our grand commitments. I was reading some things this other, a couple weeks ago from you may have heard this guy. Daniel Kahneman is his name. He's a Nobel Prize winning psychologist. And he says, yeah, people are becoming a little bit more risk averse. Here's how he puts it. He says, for most people, the fear of losing $100 is more intense than the hope of gaining $150. And what we're about to do here in our time together is I'm about to suggest to you that Jesus offers you some things. Offers you hope, offers you joy, offers you love, offers you promises that Jesus offers you some things that are pretty aligning with some of our deepest desires, but most of us are going to hear that offer, and at least a part of us is going to think, yeah, but what am I going to give up, you know? 
And if you're going to ask me to give something up for an offer that you're saying he'll give me, how can I be sure? Like I said, we do seem to be a bit more cautious with our grand commitments. In our culture, anyway, less people are getting married than ever before, and those that do get married are getting married later on in life. The statistics say that only 27% of college graduates actually pursue a career in line with their major. Now, these are not moral, immoral things. These are just interesting observations about the fact that we live in a world where people have a tendency to back up and say, I'm just not going to commit to this thing without certainty. And certainty is not something that faith tends to provide. Anybody else catch the irony of Easter falling on April 1st this year? Anybody play any jokes on each other, you know? It's April Fool's Day. Am I the only one in the room that occasionally thinks to myself, like, is this whole, like, Jesus, Christianity, resurrection thing going to turn out to be just some sort of a joke? Like, we're going to get to the end, and no, it didn't happen. How many of you, any of you, like, super April Fool's jokes type people, like, you love doing these things? Yeah, some of you, nobody, three of you, cool. My wife, is, she loves to do April Fool's jokes. She's done so many. I mean, I got stories for days. One time, I'm, uh, I'm, uh, she's actually been outlawed from doing April Fool's jokes. She'll understand why after I share a few so I remember one year, some time ago, it was a time when, uh, when we had different jobs and I had actually get up earlier than her for my job. And so, so I would get up and I'd kind of be out of the house and then she'd usually have to get up a little bit after that or whatever. So I'm leaving the house, kiss her on the forehead. She's in bed, she's about to get up. I go off, I'm down the road about five minutes on my way to work and I get this text message, ding, and I look at my phone and she's like, oh my gosh, my tooth just fell out. And I'm like, what? And so I turn the car around and I speed home and I run up the stairs and I'm like, what is going on? And she's just in the bed giggling, ha, 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 April fools, you know? Yeah. A few years ago, um, she was pregnant with our second, our son Carson, and, um, <laughs> and I woke up about 7 a.m. because my phone is dinging, and I look at my phone, and it's a friend of mine who's a pastor at the church I worked at, and he said, um, he said, hey, we're outside the hospital. Which room are you in? We brought you breakfast. And I'm like, what? And so then I look at my email and I got all these Facebook notifications, praying for you guys, so excited. We just can't wait to hear. We can't wait to see. And I'm like, what? Oh, no. And I tapped my wife on the shoulder and I said, what did you do? And she woke up. She's kind of groggy. You know, she's pregnant, right? Like eight and a half months. And she's like, I just, what? oh, well, so I had to get up and pee at three this morning. And I thought it would be funny if I got on Facebook and said, hey, the baby's coming. So I did. And I went back to bed. And now I kind of realize that probably wasn't a great idea, right? April Fool's on everybody. That same year, Claire was three years old, our firstborn. That same year, Claire, we wake up our kids and Beth's like, babe, it's snowing outside. And Claire's like, what? And she runs to the window. It was not snowing. It was Southern California, right? She's crying. Beth's over here trying not to laugh. And it was at that point that I said, okay, no more April Fool's jokes, all right? So we get these jokes and we recognize the fun of today's to see if you can pull something over on someone. And I think that some of us worry at times like the universe is pulling one over on us. That all this Jesus stuff is just gonna turn out to be some sort of a joke. And I don't know if our hesitation to commit is a new thing culturally. I think it just might be human nature. Going all in on anything is noticeable because it's not normal. Because we don't usually take a risk like this. Why would I risk everything on something I can't see? I don't think so. Still others, it may not be so much, again, for your loved ones, your friends, or maybe yourself, it may not be so much that there's a problem with Jesus. It's just more you look at this and you say, it's not my thing. It's just not for me. It's cool for you if that's your thing. If you want to be into that, that's fine. It's just not my thing. It's not what I'm into. I'm into something else. 
I saw this post on Quora recently, kind of a question and answer site for people to just get on and respond to different things. And this person, seemed like an honest seeker in truth, posted a question, said, I'm confused about religion. This is what this person said. I believe that something made the world and everything. I'm just not sure what or who did. How do I try to figure out what I believe? And I noticed the first answer on the list. The person gave some pretty good advice about read the sacred text for yourself and don't assume what everybody else says and da, da, da. And then I came across this paragraph. I want to show you this. Take a look at this. Here's what the person said. Just want you to notice. Said the difficulty that you will face is that most people will try to convert you to what they believe, whether science, atheism, agnosticism, or a specific brand of religion. To find out what you believe, you have to stay true to yourself, which can be harder than you think. And here's what I want to point out to you. That doesn't sound very weird in 2018. And that's kind of weird. Like you might disagree with that statement, but it doesn't shock you. It's not like, oh, I can't believe somebody would actually say something like that. No, like that's kind of the self-evident truth in our culture that you just kind of got to stay true to yourself and find something that matches you. I just want to point out that it's actually not self-evident that questions about reality should constantly come back to what makes most sense to me. Like in the past, most ages would suggest that the quest to be human and to do a good job of this thing is to like take yourself and align with reality. And yet we live in a world, for better or worse, in which it's very popular and common to think we got to kind of get reality to come to terms with me, to conform to what I consider myself to be. I don't know if I'm making great sense on this, but I think you guys probably get the point. And here's how it plays out in practice. When we come to this question of Jesus and whether or not we're going to give our lives to him, we might find ourselves saying, that's fine for some, it's just not me. And we do this on multiple levels. For some of us, it's religion as a whole. There are some religious people, I'm not one of them. Or maybe it's not just like, I'm not religious, I'm not into God. It's more like, well, I'm spiritual, but organized religion, not my thing. Or maybe like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but I'm not one of those like crazy, I think about God every day and I read the Bible all the time type of people. I'm just a little bit more normal. Maybe I'm too practical. Maybe I'm too scientific. Maybe I'm just too busy, right? Like chasing Jesus is for the birds. I got too many things on my to-do list. Maybe I don't want to give someone that kind of authority in my life. There's all sorts of reasons why we come up with this. We only have a few options. We can walk away from Jesus entirely. We can just kind of stay in neutral and hang out, you know, just watch people go by. I'm here. I I don't know that I'm in, but I'm here. Or we can go all in and trust him completely. Details differ, but it always comes back to the same question. Why stay with Jesus? Well, why not? Because the cost is too high for me. And I feel you. We feel you. We do. If somebody dragged you to church this morning, if your wife or husband or mom or neighbor dragged you to church this morning you're thinking here's a bunch of people who just don't even understand my questions i mean maybe not we'd actually love to talk but for the most part i think at some level if you're looking at jesus and going ah we feel you probably more than you think we understand what it's like but i guess all i want to say is what if like what if the only thing that costs more than following jesus is not following jesus or put positively what if the reward is worth the risk What if the gain so overwhelmed the losses that by the time you get to the end, you look back and laugh at the idea that you once considered not taking this journey in the first place? I think Jesus is is truly satisfying. I think that who he is and what he brings to our life answers the deepest needs of every human heart. But let me walk through this because I don't want you to take my statement for it. 
Let's talk about this last question I want to reflect on, and that's how does Jesus satisfy? Peter said, we've come to you and we're going to stay with you because there's nowhere else for us to go because you have the words of life. But what does that mean in the context of the whole story of Jesus and the Gospel of John and really backing up and looking at the Bible as a whole? I think it means four things. First thing it means is that Jesus offers a hope that doesn't run out. Is there anything more universal than a need for hope? We long for a world that is changed, that is freer, that is truer, that is better, that is more happy, more beautiful, more free. Could it be true? Is it possible that our hearts aren't lying to us when they suggest to us that the world was not designed to fall apart, that life was not supposed to look like this? I think we hope so. And I think we give nods to hope subtly all the time. Like no one wants to be hopeless, let's still have their hopes dashed. It's dangerous to get your hopes up, but we all do it. We hope for good things, hope not for bad things, and hope to see again our friends to whom we must say goodbye. We hope for the best. We even hope against hope. I'm not sure if hope springs eternal, and I don't even know what the heck that means, but I hope it does, and you probably do too. I think it's true that if you're not hoping, you're dying. And this, for me, is a big part of why looking at Jesus and saying, "Ah, it's just not for me, it's just so uncompelling. Like, I get this mentality for some things, but not others. I totally get if you just say, it's just, I'm not a morning person or I'm not a night owl. Like late evenings, just not for me. But it doesn't make any sense to me to say sleep's just not my thing, you know? I totally understand if a person's like, hey, I like steak, not salad. Or hey, I like salad, not steak. But I don't understand a person who says that whole eating thing, just not for me, you know? I got no problem with you saying this is not my career path or I'm not into that hobby, but I don't think you can live a wise, healthy, productive, and stable life if you say I'm not going to do anything at all. I'm just not going to work or I don't find anything in the universe that I actually find enjoying. And I think what Jesus offers, you're going to seek somewhere. What Jesus offers, joy, love, promise, hope, is for you. The question is, what are you going to settle for? A hope that runs out or a hope that doesn't? Because most offers of hope have a shelf life. Here, try this diet. It'll change your body, like, for a while. Institute my policies. It will heal our nation. Yeah, like until it fractures again. Just level up once more and then you'll be happy. Well, I got the win, I got the raise, or I got the promotion. Now what? What's next? Even if somebody does offer you a hope that lasts a lifetime, what about what comes after that? Because if only for this life you have hope, I kind of feel bad for you. And I don't mean that in an offensive way. I just feel like any hope that doesn't stretch into eternity is pale in comparison to one that Jesus offers. The hope of resurrection the hope of experiencing eternal life, not just in the future, but right now as a foretaste of what's to come. As we anticipate the full payment in ages upon ages upon ages when we get, like he did, a new body for a renewed world. One that takes everything good about this one and enhances it without everything that's broken and unjust is evil. This is a hope beyond death because it comes from a person who conquered death. I don't think it's matched in power or duration, and it doesn't run out or taper off or disappoint. So I think the first thing that Jesus offers you is a hope that doesn't run out. Second thing that Jesus offers you, and you can have this in a moment, is a joy that doesn't lead to shame. I suppose we could answer my question earlier, is there anything more universal than the desire for hope by saying maybe the desire for happiness? I don't, if we need to, I don't know if we need to like argue between the two. I think it's probably enough to say that we both all want both. We want hope and we want happiness. We want to know that there's a future that makes sense of our present, and we want some joy, we want some delight right now. And the fact is, this has always been true. If you sell happiness effectively, you will always find a buyer. 
But unfortunately for us buyers, most paths to happiness would be better described as paths through temporary bliss to lasting shame. And by the time moral or spiritual buyer's remorse kicks in, sometimes it's too late. And I'm not even talking about the kind of shame we feel that we shouldn't. I'm not talking about that sense of like something's wrong with me when something's actually not. I'm talking about that feeling in your gut that you realize when you know that you've walked down a path that you probably shouldn't have walked down. That you're actually a person who suppresses the truth because you just want to do whatever you want. That I'm actually a person who pursues instant gratification at the expense of the benefit of others in eternal life. And there are obvious forms of this. Things you may feast on with your eyes. Things you may feast on off a plate. Ways you may use words to hurt people. There are obvious pathways toward getting what we want that we know in the end aren't where they're supposed to be. I think there's more subtle ones as well. Climbing the ladder with no sense of whether or not it hurts the people around me. Engaging those I love codependently, keeping them weak and needing me so that I can step in and feel like the hero. Now, I don't want to make it sound like the change that Jesus brings is easy or automatic. It's not like you can snap your fingers and then all of a sudden, I'm happy now. It does not work like that. But the pathway that Jesus lays out for you is not your problems are going to disappear in a week, but if you follow me and walk in my steps, I can lead you in the path of a joy that leads to deeper joy. Is that something you want? Third thing I think Jesus offers is a love that doesn't pretend It's a strange thing culturally that we've come to a point where talking about something as seemingly nice as love can be controversial. And I want to be careful because I don't want to be misunderstood and I especially don't want Jesus to be misunderstood. So let's stick to the context of John chapter 6. The people around Jesus in John chapter 6 wanted Jesus to give them something that they needed. We need more bread. We need more sustenance. We need more proof. He's already given them quite a bit. He's given them full bellies through this miraculous multiplication of food. He's given them signs that show that they can trust in him, but they want more. They're looking at Jesus saying, I actually like what you're offering, but we want more. And Jesus says, no. Why? There are only two possible reasons why Jesus would say no. Number one is, like he doesn't actually love them or want to provide what they need. Number two is that he does love them, but he knows that giving them what they want and are asking for is opposed to giving them what they actually need. I mentioned that we've been walking through this uh, chapter of Scripture for a few weeks now, and I love how Mark put it a couple of weeks ago when he was kind of analyzing this moment. It's like Jesus shows up and says, I've come to satisfy, and people are like, sweet, Give me this. And Jesus is like, no, that won't satisfy. Here's this instead. Just trust me. I don't know how you feel about Apple, but I feel like Steve Jobs maybe learned a few tricks from Jesus. You know, he's famous for saying people don't know what they want until I tell them. And whether or not you think you actually need the computers that he's selling, I think that Jesus does something similar at the end of the day. And while it may feel insensitive for him to say, I'm going to tell you what you need, and then I'm going to give it to you. While it may feel insensitive to us today, what Jesus is doing is called love. And it's the kind of love that every parent knows when they say to the kids, okay, enough with the candy, it's time to eat some meat and vegetables. It's the kind of love that a shop teacher says to his students when he says, hey, won't you just like put on the protective gear before you start the machines? It's the love of a true friend who says through tears, it's time to stop lying to yourself and face the truth. It's a love that won't pretend. It won't pretend that all is well when all is not. 
It won't pretend that what we want can be trusted. It won't pretend that you can settle for something less than what you were made for. The world offers you a love that accepts you just the way you are. Jesus offers you a love that says, I love you because of who I am, not because of who you are, and I'm going to turn you into something else. The Bible looks at the world saying, I love you just the way you are, and never ask you to change, and calls it the blind leading the blind. Jesus says, I'm the one who can see you. Do you trust me? And here's the last one, one more, and then you can get to your Easter eggs and dinner and families. Number four, Jesus offers a promise proven by power. This is where the rubber hits the road, or in non-metaphorical terms, this is why that you can count on everything I've been saying so far as actually being true, more than just wishful thinking. The hope, the joy, the love are real. How do we know the resurrection? Now, make no mistake, this is supernatural proof because this is supernatural power. I'm enough of a scientist to believe in the resurrection, not the other way around. I think that what Jesus does here is the only possible thing that you could do to prove to someone that you are unique and should be listened to above all else. And we've sort of dug around this text and the rest of Scripture, finding different pieces and pulling them in. I want to focus your attention now on a word that Peter said, and it's this little word, life. Why did Peter and the 12 or the 11 not walk away from Jesus in this moment? Because they looked at Jesus and they knew that what they were looking at was the source of life. In Jesus, we find life, and it's a life that lights up the path in front of us. It's a life that's been proven in history when Jesus shed his grave clothes, rolled aside the stone, and said, I know Friday was tough, And I know Saturday was silent, but Sunday was always on the way. It's here, and I'm good. Now, I'll just speak personally to you. I've always been a person who occasionally doubts. It's just in my nature. It's in my DNA. It's in my mental blood. I come to these points in my life when I cycle back around, and I look around, and I say, okay, like, I'm not quite sure, Jesus, because I look at what other people believe, and I kind of think it's really strange. I kind of think it's kind of odd to think about what some people believe and give their lives to. And then I back up and I look at what I believe as if I'm watching myself. And I think, man, this is a little bit kind of strange too, right? Like, why should I believe? And there are some days when I can doubt just about every aspect of our faith. And I come back to this one point. The reason why I am a Christian now and forevermore is because I think Jesus rose from the dead. Like, by all means, Easter is a great day to test his credentials. He's fine with you comparing him with everybody else. Why might a person become a Muslim? Well, because Muhammad said God talked to him. Why might a person become a Buddhist? Well, because I know some enlightened friends who say that it helps them. Why might a person become a me-centered type of person? Well, because most of my friends think this way. Why might a person become an agnostic? Because it's kind of safe and I don't have to commit. Why might a person become a Christian? Why might you? Well, because Jesus rose from the dead. So it's time to wrap up this morning and we wrap up recognizing that there's always a choice right in front of us. A path with forks at every turn. I get it. It's just one morning and some of you are gonna walk out of here and you're gonna walk away and some of you are gonna walk out of here and you're just gonna kind of stay in neutral and float along acting as if all is well. But a few, a few may decide to trust completely in Jesus and their lives will go on to confirm the truest of truths. So what about you? How did life get you to a point where you're in this room on this morning, at this hour? And where do you go from here? Would you stand? Let me pray and then we'll sing. Father God, thank you for the opportunity to open up your word. 
and listen. I pray, God, that today as we enjoy good food and Easter egg hunts and freezing weather, that you would remind us of the deeper truths that you have saved us and that you have proven that your offer is reliable by rising from the dead. May we see you clearly. We ask this in your name. Amen. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com.